Welcome to Unapologetic episode 6. I'm Maria. I'm Sarah. And I'm Anna. So today we'll talk about decolonial queerness. Uh, and for now you might not really know what that is, but we'll break it down for you and we'll see how um, homophobia has been part of the colonial agenda overall throughout history. And yeah, we'll go through a little journey together today. Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place I wonder how And everybody sings in peace There's only one thing that we need It's unapologetic As usual, we're just sociology students We don't mean to lecture anyone This is just a discussion between us and we don't we, we don't want to speak for any individual group or community. Uh, we just aim to bridge pop culture and sociological theory. So with those disclaimers out of the way, we can go right into the episode. And yeah, just to start off, as Maria was saying, we're gonna introduce, um, I guess, this very interesting correlation between colonization and homophobia. Um, yeah, I watched a few YouTube documentaries. <laughs> that sounds kind of sketchy, but it actually is super interesting. Um, in relation to how many of the countries nowadays in which um, homosexuality or yeah is in some form illegal um, tend to be countries that were under colonial rule and most uh, particularly British colonial rule. So, yeah, basically, this means that it's not a coincidence that countries that were colonized have these rules, and that's because in the British Empire there was a law, there was the Section 377, that prohibited sex between men. Not between women, but yes, between men. And, yeah, this law was just imported with the whole colonial system into countries... uh, in Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, the Caribbean, and what this meant is that these laws were also like implemented and erased many of the cultures relating to sexuality that there were in uh, these territories before the British came, right? And I think the most important thing here is that nowadays we look at these countries many times and we're like, oh, they are so backwards. They uh, are not so progressive, so liberal. They have these rules against homophobia. But when you think about it and you look at the origins of the, that those rules, they actually come from the British, uh, which, you know, nowadays are one of those countries that don't have any of these rules and are so-called progressive, liberal, etc. in relation to LGBTQ movement. Yeah, I think it's important to note that it's not just rules, that it's actual, actual laws that can be prosecuted like legally, which I think is a very important point to note, because a lot of the times we say, oh, look at this country, they have their own way of doing things, you know? And this maybe discussions about, oh, we can't impose being more open-minded, quote-unquote, to these countries because that's the laws they have. But in reality, these laws do not come from their land, really. It's a whole constitution that has been imported by the British. So 
I think it's important to note that. Yeah, and it's always like the quote-unquote Western uh, countries, the global north, they always act like they cannot really do anything about it, but they actually can, you know. There's so much power that they hold, like, economically and politically. They can do something. But I think there's this kind of thing where, like, oh, we are the West, we are progressive, and there's kind of, like, these power relations where, like, we keep you like that. Yeah, so, for example... I think though, even though the West can do stuff now, the point, at least to me, is to know that these countries that now have uh, these laws that prohibit uh, homosexuality actually came from very progressive places. If we call, you know, progressive, like just being tolerant towards LGBTQ plus community. Uh, For instance, um, well, like I have a few examples, but just one of them that is um, these countries came from very like progressive places even Um, I mean whatever we consider progressive Um, and this uh, for instance uh, while in England in 1835 it was yeah illegal to engage in a homosexual act uh, at the same time in modern-day Uganda, uh, there was a king, King Mwanda II of Uganda, I'm really sorry for my pronunciation, who actively opposed Christianity and colonialism, and he was an openly gay monarch. So, you know, you have at the same time, in the 19th century even, which is not so far, you know, uh, uh, so far back, uh, England prosecuting people engaging in homosexual acts, and then an openly gay monarch in Africa. Well, in, I mean, Buganda, but today Uganda. Here, we should also note that Anna is saying gay monarch, but I'm sure he was not identified in that way. Uh, uh, as we move along, we'll kind of deconstruct the idea that we use these terms that are very Western to talk about uh, identities that are maybe not strictly heterosexual. Um, and we tend to identify them as gay or bisexual in the Western terms, but that might not be how they would identify and how they would shape their identity and their experience themselves. But uh, just for the general understanding, um, yeah, a gay monarch. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also important to remember that we always act like the West, it's always been progressive. Um, I mean, progressive, quote-unquote, because even now it's not really, we see so many, like, hate crimes happening like every day um but yeah we have we tend to think that it's always been like that but like in the uk like homosexuality was decriminalized in the 70s and gay marriage was not even possible until like a few years ago so yeah it's important to keep that in mind and like going back to what uh, sarah just said with the idea that Somehow we believe that the West and Britain and all these countries are so progressive, even though uh, decriminalizing homosexuality only happened maybe like 40 years ago or 50. We can also see how a lot of countries like France, the Netherlands or even Israel really see themselves as these kind of countries that are really for gay rights and that are that considering considering themselves very progressive and very open-minded and they kind of put themselves against others that are not. Uh, for example, we see a lot in in media, in the news, 
um, everywhere. You see this kind of contradiction between the Middle East uh, and Islam, which is uh, a supposed different ideology to what is happening in the West, as opposed to this kind of quote-unquote homo-nationalism, which is basically a term used to show how these countries see themselves as like nationalistic in relation to being very open-minded and they have this patriotic almost feel to like oh we're so good we are really good with dealing with people that are different and stuff like that yeah so at the end of the day you um have countries uh as where you're saying like for example the netherlands that um on the basis of saying we are very tolerant towards the LGBTQ community, therefore we can't accept any migrants from countries that are not tolerant towards these communities. Um, but it's just a discourse that's used to um, justify like xenophobic behavior, honestly. Yeah, and like even a lot of people that want to migrate might be refugees exactly because they are people that are being prosecuted because they are homosexual, for example. Um, so I think this kind of discourse can be very dangerous. And there's also this term that I found while I was researching, uh, which is called sexual exceptionalism, which kind of explains the idea that uh, a lot of the times we see native or non-white cultures as being opposed to queerness. And this all is kind of tied to colonialism and seeing them, anything that isn't white as kind of less progressive. Um, and yeah, it kind of encapsulates the idea that whiteness is always kind of better and more higher up and the others are like not caring as much about these rights and are being worse off and all those sorts of things. So far, we have talked about the relationship between colonization and the spread of homophobia and how damaging this is for two reasons, mainly because it erases any other culture towards sexuality that was present in those countries that were colonized. And on the other hand, because it perpetuates this idea that the West or the global North is superior in their you know, uh, values and how they are more tolerant toward people, while, like, that's basically just a myth that was established in the last, like, what, 50 years. Um, this was not always uh, the case, and we, yeah, if you have a more, like, historical perspective, you can see that tolerance towards um, different ways of sexuality is not a, <laughs> something that the West can claim as its own. And yeah, on that note, I think we wanted to introduce the thinker, Gloria Becker. It's, she's a Dutch uh, academic. academic, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, and one of her works in particular is um, crucial in demonstrating this difference in perceptions of sexuality around the world. So she studied uh, Mati work, which is a, word, a way of pursuing sexuality, I guess, in Suriname amongst women and I don't want to bring this example just to be like oh here it's a different case and this is um, sexuality in another part of the world and treat it as an exotic case but rather to to exemplify how sexuality can be 
just you know conceived in a totally different way that's not the same that we have in yeah western europe or the us and basically what uh becker says is that mati work it's more of a behavior that women assume in suriname in which there are homosexual relations amongst women but it's more of a yeah as i was saying like a behavior it's not really like oh now i label myself as someone that does mati work but it's more like it's not their identity it's rather how they go on about life and like the choices they make yeah you can perceive it a bit like a verb you know it's not something you are it's something you do which i think uh if you remember from a pre- from our previous episodes if you've been listening uh we've mentioned the milio before and the way that he was talking about uh it's only been in the past uh again like around 50 or something years that uh, homosexuality has been seen a lot more as an identity rather than a behavior. Um, and he was saying that it's because of capitalism and there's all these other reasons why that might be the case, but that's only in certain parts of the world and that's not always the case that, um, you know, liking someone from the same gender or anything that is non-heterosexual is perceived to be an identity. And it can also just be perceived as you know, something you do sometimes or something that is just very normal. Like even in ancient Greece, it was always something that just happened. And a lot of people maybe don't talk about it, but like no one was gay in ancient Greece, you know, but a lot of men especially would have sex with other men. And that was just part of reality. Exactly. And yeah, again, like I think the importance here is to notice that it's not translatable you know to like lgbtq terms like we shouldn't just when we see something different be like oh yeah those women they were just lesbians that's not a way of respecting i guess this um perception of sexuality that's just translating everything to western terms and creating some form of hierarchy you know amongst these um perceptions yeah and at the same at the same time um now, for, for example, in the Mati work, it's easier to speak of it like in, in the right terms. Um, but I also understand that like language plays such a big role because like, how do you even speak of something that you don't have a word for? Um, it's it's because sexuality, in the way that we understand it now, it's a framework that we use to understand the world. But the moment that we deconstruct this framework, what do we have? Mm. Yeah, I think... Um, looking at the diff- the like other side of this as well, we can see how for people in the West or for people that do see things from this kind of discourse of LGBTQ sort of language, uh, we can definitely see how they might see um, anything that resembles what they experience, like having sex with someone from the same gender or feeling attraction towards them or something like that. Uh, in different cultures or different times as something that they identify with and they're like oh you know in ancient Greece people were gay I love that it you know it shows that I can also be gay somehow and so I think you can also see how people would do that because that's the language they know and that's how you would translate that in your own terms but I think we can also try to move away from that and see how that doesn't always have to be the case and we can also just have more nuance to the way that we talk about these things and and incorporate 
different cultures in the way that they're meant to be incorporated in your everyday life rather than being translated to what you know. Definitely. Yeah, another reason why we introduced Becker is because she also writes about three takeaways to understand sexuality in a multicultural perspective, which I think really speaks to us and like what we're trying to do in this podcast, because yeah, I think we are always like trying to be mindful of the context that, about relating to what we're talking about. And what she says is that, first of all, when you talk about sexuality, you, we shouldn't assume that it's always about identity. So as Maria was saying, for example, when we just like see what was happening in ancient Greece and we're like, oh, they were gay. And like, you know, we just label them with this like gay identity. That's kind of like, it's useful to understand what's what was going on. But we shouldn't just like say that was their identity because also in the case of Mati work, this way of sexuality wasn't perceived in that way. You know, it's it's a behavior, it's not a label. So the first step is not to just label everything as if it's an identity. Second point is to take emic forms of sexuality seriously. So not debase them because they're not what is portrayed in Western academia and not be like, yeah, this is a lesser form of sexuality, this is a less developed form of sexuality, they haven't yet reached this stage or whatnot. Um, and rather, like, take it seriously and, you know, respect it for what it is. And which I think goes back to what we were saying of, like, you know, translating everything to um, Western terms and being like, yeah, this is this other form is just in a lesser way or something like that. Um, and third, we should understand that homosexualities, uh, quote unquote, are many and manifold. So there is no right way of being homosexual and there is no one way either of being homosexual or, you know, engaging in these different ways of sexuality. Uh, we can talk about same-gender sexual behavior as a monolithic entity across cultures. Uh, it differs and it's going to be always uh, something that varies. And I think that's something important to acknowledge when yeah, we just go into these uh, conversations or when we're trying to understand something from a different part of the world. Yeah, I think the last part about not taking any sort of behavior or identity as monolithic is something we can take as a as a note for everyday life and everything that we deal with in general. Yeah, and also like when we stop um, using sexuality as a an identity and we see more as just being uh, existing. Um, we can also stop objectifying people for, for their behavior and their being. Moving on, I thought that it could be interesting to talk about academia. And I know that not all of our listeners know a lot about academia or care about it, but um, we can can you kind of bring you along so you can understand how academia uh, also shapes social movements to some extent. What do you consider academia for someone that, like, how would you quickly define it for someone that is not really used to the term? I think, first of all, sadly, I would say that a lot of it is shaped uh, in a very Western way. And it's like circles of people 
that uh, work in as professors or as researchers uh, in certain fields and they know a lot about a subject um, and in those circles you know they have very specific language to talk about different things uh, and a lot of people might call it elitist because um, a lot of the times the language that is used in academia is not very accessible to people um, and we're very aware of that um, but we also see the way in which these academic circles are able to shape um, movements, social movements, as you know, research in society does also lead to understanding it um, on a more deeper level to some extent. And yeah, after kind of defining that, um, we want to talk about how, you know, a lot of the times there's this term queer theory, which we've talked about before, uh, but maybe in the previous episodes we were not the most accessible, so we'll try to kind of explain things a bit more now. Um, queer theory is kind of the academic term used to talk about, uh, you know, theories and research being done on the field of LGBTQ rights and behaviors and communities and all those sorts of things. And bringing it back to colonialism and kind of going beyond that, we wanted to show that a lot of the times these types of queer theories tend to see what is LGBTQ as a very specific way of being. And they're always very much centered around mostly white male and female uh, experiences of being queer and we want to kind of expand on that and see how it would be a lot more important I th we think to put nuance into those theories and following that into the movements that that go from them to have intersectionality incorporated into any movement or any academic field in general because as we said the queer theory is always very centered on the experience of mostly western white people and it might invalidate the experience of people of color yeah and i think even when they are researching uh these um quote-unquote other sexualities it's always from a place of superiority so because we're using like uh western like epistemology so like a way of creating knowledge that's very based in the west it's really hard to approach well i i, I don't know i don't think there are many examples of approaching like um the study of other sexualities from other places or other cultures that's not like demeaning to them and it's not like uh well, this is a case study, and it's not, uh, like, it, it's treated as something that's just peculiar and exotic, and it's not really, like, given the respect, I guess, that it's given to the queer studies in the West. Yeah, I mean, I think we can take this for any research in general to talk about the fact that there's always this power balance between... 
people being researchers and the researchers and there is times uh, especially when someone that is doing the research you know identifies with the group that they they want to research and then the the power balance might be smaller so you know there are people from different communities that are not from the west that do do academic research in the quote unquote western way that still do it in other places but they identify with those groups and then you know it's you're able to do research in a more i don't know how to say it like proper way uh, like less objectifying way let's just call it that but yeah the main point is that uh, we believe that in the academic field we should have more inclusivity and as we said before through what becker said we should never have a monolithic way of looking at what is homosexual or what is queer or what is whatever um and all experiences should be perceived on a more or less equal level you know everyone experiences life differently um so it's important to note other ways of experiencing queer feelings queer identities and all those sorts of things not just in academia but also in the movements that we create for example uh, in the netherlands um a lot of movements in general are seeking to find a lot more inclusivity and a lot more intersectionality and every fight is not just you know for the environment or for black people or for women or for lgbtq rights it's they're all encapsulated into one um and we doing this podcast talking about intersectionality all the time think that is pretty great <laughs> now we want to shift attention back to becker um in another work that she did um about sexualizing poc um poc stands for people of color <laughs> by the way um yeah so she analyzed dutch culture archives um uh, but we're not going to focus on dutch um uh, history we rather take the main points away from this text so becker found that white women's sexuality and femininity is always seen as the norm and default um and in contrast like black women and asian women um uh, we're going to focus on on that um are usually hypersexualized but in different ways and as we're going to see so for example black women tend to be seen as criminal and like only specific traits of them are um highlighted yeah highlighted thank you Anna. <laughs> um and asian women tend to be fetishized um and seen as sex workers uh most of the time and there's this term um that we always hear um uh, that is exotic which is a very very dangerous term because um it really sexualizes asian women in only their specific like features but it's not only on women it's also men many times so in relation to this idea of the exotic there is this term orientalism which it has been used for a while now and it's not only relating to like sexuality and sexualizing um you both from um asia but it uh it does reflect this like power um imbalances i guess it 
you know, so um, Orientalism puts uh, Asia in perspective to the West, you know, because it's in the Orient, so it's like positioned geographically and the West is the center. I mean, Europe is the center and then Asia is to, to its east. And that already creates a hierarchy of knowledge and power uh, that puts Europe in this like position of superiority. And that can then also be seen in the way that, um, well, fetishes and exoticism towards Asian women or even men it's uh, created. Yeah, I think for people that might have never thought about this, um, you can see it in movies of Hollywood, I think, a lot, how anytime there's Asian women, they're seen as like the little ninjas that wear, that wear very little clothes. I mean, women in general in Hollywood are always sexualized. Um, it's not just Asian women. But um, we see how, you know, there's a very specific stereotype to an Asian woman um, in Hollywood, which is like being very ninja-y as well, which, is, which happens with men as well. But then uh, you see it in the way, like in real life as well, um, how in Western countries you see... Asian women that are young especially that are very much sexualized because of anime even but also um, because of orientalism uh, that goes back many many years in the way that they're seen as small and they're seen as very sensitive and very fragile um, and that can be very detrimental I think another example of this is like the assumptions around massage parlors run yeah. by Asian women or yeah, Asian family, mm -hmm. I don't know, that are always, uh, there's this like uh, idea that there is actually something sexual behind it. Well, I think, I mean, there might be cases in which it's not, that's not the case, but that's not the rule either. Yeah. And the bottom line of this is that Asian women are just seen as um, objects of pleasure, pleasure for uh, white men, and there's al always this power dynamic going on. Not just when we talk about this, but like in anything, like any interaction that we see, it's always there the power, the power dynamic for sure. I think just so we don't always focus about for only women. I think these sort of assumptions about sexuality go to men as well. I think. For Asian gay men, we see them being sexualized and being seen as very fragile and stuff like that as well. But I think for Asian men as well, we see kind of the opposite. Like I've seen a lot of YouTube videos um, of Asian men that are mostly straight, I think, uh, talking about how they feel like when they go to Western countries, they feel very emasculated, which is a word that I usually would use, not in a good way, but... <laughs> Um, I think it's important to note, you know, it's their experience and they feel like uh, going to the West, they, they feel like they have no sexuality because they're perceived as having no masculinity, being smaller, again, being vulnerable. I think this vulnerability very much extends to the Asian community in general when being seen from the West, which I think can be very damaging. 
I guess this also comes to show then like how um I mean I don't know if this is like a direct uh result of colonization but we see like uh common perspectives like common stereotypes around um people of color and their sexualities from like um white perspective so like you know white is the norm quote unquote and then everything else is like stereotyped mm. i think on that note we can introduce like the last topic we wanted to bring today which it's more of a open question i think to us and to everyone that's listening in relation to um how we relate uh being oppressed as a queer individual versus being racialized as a queer individual and i think i mean maybe sarah you can introduce this because you brought this up but yeah it's just like a debate that i hear a lot um when it comes to intersectionality and oppression um for example white queer people tend to think that they are on the same level as a black individual um, that tends to be, you know, straight and uh, cisgender. And so oppression works like a scale, a ladder, mm-hmm. um, where like, you know, okay, I'm white, so I'm at the bottom. And then race plays like one step and then sexuality plays another. And in that way, you kind of see um, oppression as a plus one, plus one, plus one. Instead of seeing how, like, you know, for example, sexism and racism bind together and they create a different kind of racism for for black women, for example. And that's why so many times you hear uh, white queer people saying, oh, we have to find liberation together with black people because we are on the same level. And of course, many black people get very offended by this because they were also they are also oppressed by many (laughs) white queer people. And. Yeah, this is the main debate that we want to bring forward because it's a very interesting uh, conversation to have. Yeah, so the idea that, you know, they can either be an additive oppression or they can be something more fluid and something new that is being created through, you know, being oppressed in different ways. And, And like Sara said, you know, sometimes... There's even a sort of competition that exists between oppressed groups. And I mean, I think that happens a lot with social movements in general, that, you know, most of the time there's a specific enemy, which is mostly the same to these groups. But then there, there comes different little small, maybe sometimes not small, maybe let, let me not say that, uh, but, you know, there's differences that exist between these groups and then there is internal conflict which might end up um, causing more distress rather than uh, better results uh, in relation to, you know, social movements and emancipation. I wanted to um, bring like maybe like a different example. So instead of this competition that we'll be talking about, I recently been reading... Um, a book by Angela Davies in which she explains the kind of collaboration, the initial collaborations between um, 
anti-slavery uh, movements in the US, like in the 19th century, and white women's effort to the for that cause, and at the same time, women's uh, liberation. So there was a window in time in which like white women and um, people fighting against slavery worked together because they could identify kind of, you know, in the struggle. They could see points in common. I mean, later on, this didn't turn out well because a lot of these white women were also very racist towards the newly freed uh, uh, black people of the US. But it was an interesting perspective to be able to collaborate in these struggles and rather than compete to see which one is the most oppressed or which one needs help first. Um, many times what uh, Davies was uh, saying is that um, it's something like uh, no group can be fully liberated until all of the other groups are liberated, you know. So it's not a race to be the first one to be liberated, it's rather uh, a collaborative work to get everyone there as fast as possible. Yeah, and also because um, this competition, all it does is just benefiting the uh, the oppressor, of course. Um, and we hear this a lot, especially when it comes to feminism. Uh, white women thinking that their struggle is the same as black women, because they are women. Um, so, so many times black women are really like, got out of the conversation and really silenced and like, oh no, like it's fine, I'm a woman too, I can speak for you. But it doesn't work like that because um, the sexism that black women um, experience is also racialized. And it's just a very different type of oppression and um, discrimination. And we really have to understand that. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about it just being a more nuanced thing. It's not one way of being oppressed. You know, each individual sees themselves being oppressed differently in a different context, uh, through different means, you know. And so believing that there's only one way and anything being monolithic, uh, most of the time does not end up serving anyone very well, I think. So I think with these we can conclude the sixth episode, which is also the last episode of the first season of Unapologetic. Yeah, you heard it, just first season, doesn't mean it's over. <laughs> uh, but we're still gonna give you a few takeaways so that you can wrap up this episode. Um, well, first of all, we believe it's really important to acknowledge that um, we can't think of sexuality according to different paradigms. So it's not just an identity and it's not just LGBTQ people. There are different ways of perceiving these, which do not necessarily mean it's just a different name for the same thing. It's just a different system, let's say. So that's takeaway number one. And then another takeaway that you can take is that, you know, positions of power, whether it's the West or whether it's you know, being white, even if you are in the West or any sort of position of power can create knowledge um, and it can create knowledge on the back of oppressed people. Uh, so we can think of Western academia and how it can define what is normal and what is not and how, you know, there's a norm and there's the exceptions 
to the rule when it maybe doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and if there is one takeaway from the whole season uh, that you can take, is definitely um, think in terms of intersectionality. Don't think of um, oppression and discrimination in the additive way, but really try to question everything that goes on and how um, two different forms of you know discrimination like intersect with each other and create another form. Um, so yeah, keep that in mind all the time. During your summer vacation. Yeah, and we'll have recommendations that you can read or listen to or watch during your vacation time. On the Instagram. Well, hopefully see you after the summer. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.